Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. So, Martin, how did yep. you enjoy our little foray into the dark ages last night? Um, I tethered off my phone and it was fine. Did you? Yep. Did your, did your phone work? Yes. My phone like didn't work at all. Wow, sucks to suck. Wait, you're on Verizon. You're, yes. You're on my phone plan. Yes. This isn't fair. And I had working internet all night. I was sitting there literally just trying to look at the tweets from Comcast to see when like the internet outage was going to happen or be done and even that wouldn't load. That is kind of ridiculous. Which you were tethering all my internet away. That was your it. fault. That you wasn't put it. me wasn't, in the dark I wasn't ages. using it the whole time. So it looks like Verizon just doesn't like you. It doesn't matter if you use it the whole time. You actually sucked up all the internet in one concentrated little dose. Oh, that is how that works, isn't it? It's like a well, actually, yeah. If you, you like, draw up some internet today, yeah. then you get some connections. I just like was trying to put a little straw in the internet well, and then you just like had a fire hose on reverse in there. Good. Stealing all the internet. That's what I do. How dare you? Yeah, that was weird, though. Like, the whole city lost internet, I think, pretty much. There were riots. There were riots. Everyone's dead. Yep. There's actually nobody left in Denver to listen to this podcast. You're the only people we can talk to. <laughs> All of our friends are gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a great start to a podcast. Yeah. All righty. Let's just jump right into it. We are doing another book analysis episode. I like these episodes. These are fun. I like books. I like books sometimes. Yeah. And uh, we know that our audience likes books too because that video that we did on book recommendations was like the best performing video <laughs> that we've done in... I don't know, over a year, probably. Maybe oh, not yeah. over a year. No, 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 no. Feynman Technique video did better, but it has been a while since something did that well. So, yeah, and I also just love digging into books. So I wanted to pick a little bit of something out of left field for this book analysis. Yeah. Um, because usually we'll try to pick books that are, like, squarely aimed, not at students, but, like, squarely aimed at, like, productivity or learning or, or something like, that else like is, people. like... Yeah, like we did essentialism. General. Essentialism was the last one, right? I think. Maybe. I wanna, I'm pretty sure it was. I don't remember. And essentialism is like squarely aimed at the individual. Here's how to become an essentialist. Yeah. Here's how to focus, all that kind of stuff. I don't remember what the last book before that was, but it was probably a very similar case. This is a different case. So today on the podcast, friends of mine, we are we're going to go through uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. And... This book is the product of a five-year research study that was done back in the 90s, I think. It was like 96 to 2001 or something like that. Gotta I love the think. 90s. It was a while ago. Um, but the question that they were trying to answer is, can a company that is merely good or mediocre actually make the leap to becoming a great company? Because there are a lot of companies out there that you, as far back as you can remember, they have been great. Like Disney. It's like Disney was always great. In terms of, like, at least in terms of the results. I don't know. I don't know what you would think of Disney World. I think it's pretty great. Uh, I've never myself. been there. It's pretty great. Um, you know, Walmart was pretty great. But at least as far as we've been, as people have kind of known what Walmart is. So the real question was like, okay. Great companies start out great. They are great. Is there something intrinsic to them? Or is it possible for a company to just kind of toodle along for a long time, not really be all that special, and then make some sort of change that makes them great for a long period of time? Yeah. This is like nature versus nurture for companies. Yes. So I read this book because I want to build a better company. I want College Info Geek to become great. That's the whole vision here. So I've been told to read this book by many people. It was actually pretty cool because I picked it up and I realized that the dude, Jim Collins, actually lives in Boulder. Oh, yeah. We should so, just go knock on his door. And say, let's What's go up? hang out with him sometime. Yeah, that might be cool. Um, and then my friend Andrew has read this. He was like, yeah, you should definitely read it. But as I was reading through it, number one, we do book analysis episodes every so often. So I was like, we need a book. And I know you can read a book in like a day, but it takes me longer to read books. I'm a slower reader. 
but two, I was reading through it and I was like, this this book is written for companies and executives and leaders who are managing people. But I'm seeing a lot of lessons that can apply to individuals. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is actually a pretty, if if not a good book for a student to spend their time reading the entirety th- entire thing, it's at least a good thing to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And I got a lot of it. I have a lot of notes here. So I don't, I don't know what you have. I have a couple of notes. I feel like you were less impressed by this book than I was. Like just, I, just I found, listening to you so far. I found parts of it really cool. Okay. Yeah. I think we were, we were talking earlier about how um, you view books that are nonfiction differently than I do. Because I usually, I, I, I don't know what this is. I think it's just been built into my brain over the past seven years. Whenever I read a book, I'm reading it and I just can't help but think like, oh, I could share this or, oh, I could make a video out of this or I could make a podcast out of this. And I feel like you don't look at books that way. Uh, no, not unless I know it's going to be an episode, yeah. which I didn't because I read this faster than we made that decision. I, were you done with it when I mentioned that we should do it as a podcast? I read this book like the first day after I started it. That's true. Yeah. It read it overnight. Was, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how I, you I read that. it. <laughs> I read it for me. So therefore, my mind was filtering out anything that I already found obvious for me okay. or that wasn't that relevant. Fair enough. I just tend to read books with the, I don't know, with the intention of sharing what I learn. And I think it's a weakness sometimes because it makes me read very slow. Yeah. I'll read one thing and then I'll go write a zillion notes about it or I'll daydream about it or like, what could I do mm. about this? See, and I, I, I just want to absorb it. it all and then sort of see what happens with all the books I've absorbed. Yeah. I wish I could be like that. I, maybe I can work to be like that. Maybe there's some process I can go through. But um, I have a lot of notes on this on this book here. So what I want to do is go through the criteria of the study, kind of just lay the or set the stage here for what they did, who they looked at, and what the whole point was. And then what I want to get into is how their findings apply to an individual or a student or anybody just trying to become more productive and make their life a great one. All right. So really the question of this book, again, is can a good company become a great company? So what they did is, number one, they didn't sit down and just say, let's write a pop psychology business book where we like find a couple of research results in a public database and then come up with a bunch yeah. of stuff that sounds good. Yeah. Like the thing I really liked about this book is that it was really rigorously researched and they had a whole team of researchers. It took them five years to do this. And they had like this set of very strict criteria of what makes a good to great company versus something that was already great versus something that wasn't truly great. So what they ended up doing is first and foremost, they decided to go with publicly traded companies and this, I mean, obviously it's limiting up front, right? Yeah. But the, the, what this does is this allows them to look at public financial data. So they decided like we can't easily get hard data on greatness in terms of like employee morale or greatness in terms oh, yeah. of anything soft. You can't really like, objectively compare that. Right, yeah. When it comes to objective comparisons, the only thing you can really look at is the results. And results are often done in the form of money or in returns, and stock market returns. It's at least easy to understand. Yes. So that was their first step, which was like, we're going to pick publicly traded companies. And our criteria is we're going to look at the stock market and we're looking for companies that were on the Fortune 500 in any year between 1965 and 1995. So these are pretty big companies. Um, The companies that made the list had to have a 15-year streak of cumulative returns at or below the general stock market. So basically, do an average or worse. And then there'd be a transition point followed by cumulative returns of at least three times higher than the general market for the next 15 years. So what this criteria does is it excludes the companies that were already great. They're looking for the ones that had to make a leap at some point. And it also excludes one-hit wonders and companies that couldn't sustain their greatness for a long period of time. So that'll exclude companies that maybe like bring in a celebrity CEO who just whips everything into shape and then leaves and the company just goes back down. Yeah. And that happened in a lot of the comparison companies. So uh, the other thing is it had to be great independent of its industry. So if the whole industry showed this pattern of like going along, then right up there, they dropped the company. And every company they ended up selecting had a comparison company, 
which had the same opportunities, same resources, was in the same industry at the time of transition, but didn't make that leap. So that way they could com uh, compare and contrast. Like, what did this company do that this one didn't with the same opportunities? Yeah. Um, and they also studied some unsustained comparisons. So basically what that meant is they took a few companies that around that same time period, they did make a transition from good to great, but it wasn't sustained. It eventually went back down. So that helps to answer the question, how do you build like an enduring, lasting greatness instead of just a nice little spike that goes back down? And with that criteria in mind, they went from an initial pool of 1,435 companies down to only 11. So only 11 fit this criteria. And I was actually curious. So this book was written in 2001. I wanted to know how many of these companies are still on the Fortune 500. So the companies are um, Abbott Laboratories, which I have never heard of. I don't know. Have you yeah, heard of them? I don't know what that is. I think they do like some sort of medical stuff. Uh, Circuit City, Fannie Mae, Gillette, Kimberly Clark, Kroger, which owns King Supers. Yep. Uh, Nucor, just steel company. Philip Morris, Pitney Bowes, Walgreens, and Wells Fargo. So at the time of writing, then when this book came out, all of these companies, I believe, are still in the Fortune 500. And I was curious. I was like, which ones are still on it? Which ones are gone? So Circuit City, obviously gone. You probably don't see Circuit Cities very often anymore. Uh, was great during the research period, but that doesn't guarantee that greatness is going to last forever. And Circuit City is a very good example of that. You have to be constantly vigilant. And in fact, I was looking this up and I was like, I wonder why Circuit City was so great for so long and then utterly failed. And I found out that Alan Wurzel, the son of the guy who made Circuit City, like founded it back in the 40s, he actually wrote a book called Good to Great to Gone. Oh. And it like details everything that that caused Circuit City to just tank. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, apparently they got like a new CEO who messed a bunch of stuff up and they just didn't compete with Best Buy. But for a very long period of time before that, they were just crushing it. Um, and I do want to use them as an example here. It's very easy to say, well, Circuit City's dead now, so why should we listen to any insights coming from them? Clearly, there was a period of greatness that we can look at. So yeah. even if they did go down the toilet eventually, there is something to their transition from good to great that we can look at. Um, Abbott's still on there. Fannie Mae's still on there, number 20. Gillette merged into Procter & Gamble back in 2005. Let's see here. Kimberly Clark's still on it. Kroger's still on it. Nucor is still on it. Philip Morris is still on it. Walgreens and Wells Fargo, they're all still on it. The only one that has fallen off and hasn't died or merged is Pitney Bowes. And I think they make like back office automation software and stuff. It used to be like weird addressing machines, I think, like postage automation. Yeah, some stuff I wouldn't think about. Yeah, real boring stuff. But they are off of it now. Uh, the rest of these companies are still on it. So... Clearly, there is something to what they did that has enabled them to not only sustain that enduring period of 15 years of the study, but also to endure 15 years after that book came out. They're actually 16. Yeah. All right. So I ended up coming up with six big lessons out of everything that was covered in the book. Um, but the first one on my list was what they call it a level five leader. And I think this was actually the the biggest lesson you got from the book. Yeah, this was, this was the biggest part that I didn't sort of see coming or think of before. Yeah, so I'm really actually, I want to let you take that one because I got a bunch more. Well, what I found really interesting about the their idea of level five leadership, and, and a lot of the qualities are qualities you might assume about good leaders. But one of the interesting differentiators that they pointed out was that their level five leaders from these companies were not charismatic. They they were not celebrity CEOs. And they, a lot of them were just really humble, even shy people that just wanted good results. Like it wasn't about them. Yeah. It was about the company. But when you think of who should run a company, you might think of some really charismatic leader Who's gonna Who's gonna whip everybody into shape and create a crazy company spike? Yeah, you but think the of problem, the celebrity CEOs like yeah. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or yeah, I don't know uh, Jack Welch. But the question of a great company isn't about what they can do with one great person because then it's about them. 
Right. And as soon as they leave, if they haven't made it about the company and not them, the company tends to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that actually – there's another part in the book where they reference kind of company styles. And I really like this part where they talk about how a setup you don't want to have is the genius with a thousand helpers. Yeah, yep. Which is essentially I'm going to run everything. Everything's my idea. I just need you guys to do these things for me because I don't have time. But as soon as that genius leaves, his thousand helpers have nothing to do and the company dies. Yeah, they have no Their legacy, anymore. that genius has no legacy mm-hmm. other than being personally rich maybe. Yeah, exactly. I remember they were talking about a, uh, having a culture of discipline and how that's very different than having a tyrannical disciplinarian leader who just uses their own sheer force of will essentially to oh, make yeah. sure things get done. Yeah, if it's you like, have a 100 employees and they're all working really hard because they care about what they're doing or they believe in the company or at least the people they work with, if not the stuff they're doing, mm-hmm. then that is better than if you have 100 people doing the same amount of work but only because they have to and inside they're all just stewing with like bitterness. and. Yeah, exactly. The, the slightest thing might snap your whole company. Mm-hmm. And I did find it interesting that when – so Jim Collins and his team actually interviewed a lot of the executives of these companies, like had them literally come in and sit down with them. And there was a surprising lack of talk about motivating people, about disciplining them. They found that if they got the right people in the company, so they hired smart, and then they just focused on the results and led by example, then people were just naturally motivated. Yeah. So all the, I mean, people probably had jobs where a manager will come in and try to motivate them or something. Like all of that doesn't actually work so well. This is a war on stress. <laughs> anybody exhibiting or anybody, yeah, anybody feeling stressed by the end of the day will be fired. <laughs> yeah. So um, what I got from the level five leader concept that I liked the best, and I have a lot of notes here, so I need to scroll through them, is that it's this combination of humility and will. So like you said, it's it's not having an ego. It's not making it all about me. But then it's also just being more of like a plow horse than a show horse is how they put it. Yeah, because it's it's not only the humility. Like you're not going to get a whole lot done if you just sit back and do nothing, but also don't try very hard. You have to have that strong disciplinary will to do something good. Yeah. And the humility at the same time, the the willingness to do hard work like the like the plow horse, but Mm -hmm. not really get any credit for it. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that I really liked here is the emphasis on ownership when things go wrong and Mm, non-ownership when things go right. So I think the way they put it was um, when things go right, you look out the window. When things go wrong, you look in the mirror. Yeah. And they pointed out several examples of when the company had a bad year, the CEO would say, okay, what did I do wrong? But when I had a good year, they'd often say it was luck or I'm just just so fortunate to have a great team. I'm really glad that I have all these people on the bus with me. Like they would never make it about themselves. And I really love that because that is not something that's just going to serve a CEO of a company. That's going to serve anybody at any level. If you're leading a group project at school, not taking all the credit is going to help you out a lot. Taking ownership for things going wrong is going to help you out a lot. It's going to impress the people who are your superiors, and it's going to impress the people who are working underneath you. Yeah, I think a combination of like strength of will and humility is kind of just a good human quality. Yeah. To well, have in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. And nobody likes a braggart. Nah. Right? And, you know, when you get into your first job, like right after school, you're not a CEO. You're not a leader. You're probably not even a manager. But if you work in this way where you are humble, but you just quietly work away and you have a huge work ethic, like you are going to impress the people you're working for. So you can, I think you can exhibit like level five tendencies, even if you're not a leader. Yeah. Yeah. I did write down the levels in case anyone is curious. So the way that they lay it out in this book, the first level is highly capable individuals. So people who just basically produce good things, have talent, they have knowledge and skills. Uh, Second is a contributing team member. So you move to level two once you can work well within a group and your individual contributions are, are contributing towards some bigger whole. Level three is a competent manager. So somebody who can organize people and resources toward the effective pursuit of an objective Level four is an effective leader. Now, this is somebody who can actually get commitment and get people to vigorously pursue a compelling vision. They're able to um, stimulate higher performance standards. Then level five is the ability to synthesize all those qualities and blend it with that humility and that will to build an enduring legacy. 
So it's, it's really something to aspire to, I think. But I think that that blend of humility and will is something you can aspire to before you ever have leadership. Yeah. You yeah. Because those qualities work well in a personal mm-hmm. situation. One other thing I noted about level five leadership is that the CEOs who exhibited this, they often set their successors up for success instead of setting their successors up for failure, which is what a lot of those big bravado, you know, the celebrity CEOs did. They'd come in, then they'd leave when they got bored, and the person left to pick up, up like, after them. Uh, had yeah. no idea what to uh, do. I don't know what to do. Be a genius like me. Pretty much. Maybe that'll fix the company. Yeah. And uh, what that reminded of me of is I had a conversation with my, with my mom the other day, and at her job, she said that she's basically, like, anytime she does something complicated, she writes up a little helpful tips document and just puts it in a folder on the company computer. So that way, if she ever does leave the job, whoever replaces her is going to have a much easier time doing that stuff. And I was like really impressed by that. Yeah. I was like, you're, you're thinking like five steps ahead because most people don't think about who's going to take the job after them. And a lot of people are like bitter about it if they get laid off or something. Yeah. And documentation is like the worst, most grueling thing to do anyway. Yeah. So you've probably looked through other people's code before. Yes. I've also <laughs> written a lot of documentation when I, when I left my last job because mm-hmm. there were a lot of processes that I came up with myself. And I care about all the people at that company. So I was like, I'm going to write a whole lot of documentation on how to do all of this. And it's very (coughs) grueling. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if you don't do it, then you just cut the chicken's head off. It can't do much. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that isn't just applicable to you leaving the company. Because most people, they're going to get a job. If they do well, they're probably going to get promoted, right? And if they get promoted, somebody's going to take their old position. Now, if you get promoted, That's you might true. be around still to help that person, and you should do that. But what can you do now to set that person up to do really well when they come in? How can they hit the ground running without you having to have a whole lot of involvement? Yeah. Well, I mean, that also comes back and helps you because if you're spending time helping all those people after you've gotten promoted or something, mm-hmm. then you're not giving your best at your current job. You're spending your time shadow doing your old job. Yeah, it's true. And that's that's something that I'm trying to do with my own stuff. Like that's why we're writing all the standard operating procedure documents. And every time that there's like an improvement, we encourage people to say to like tell people about it, so they'll do it. Yeah. That way. I mean, I'm not leaving my job, but I am shifting my role back You're to my creative stuff. So a lot of what I'm doing, you might do in the future, or Kayla might do it in the future. So what can I do to make that easier on her or to make her more likely to succeed in that area? Yeah. I think that's a, it's a good trait to develop. So that is level five leadership. Um, and I do want to leave that off with a quote from Harry S. Truman who said, you can accomplish anything in life provided that you do not mind who gets the credit. And that hit me hard. I think I read that right after uh, we had done the first couple of test articles with our new writer. Oh, yeah, and we, we were talking about that. Yeah, because what? So, for anybody who doesn't know, um, in order to make more videos, I wanted to hire somebody to write the companion articles for the videos. And because I do the research for the scripts and everything, at first, my initial thought was, oh, this person will just ghostwrite it. They'll basically turn my video into an article version. And because it often has my own stories in it, it'll be my name on there. Well, <laughs> the person we hired is a fantastic writer, but she was having difficulty writing in my voice. And I just realized like that, that's actually kind of the wrong position for a great writer to have to try yeah. to be somebody else. So I read that quote and I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter if I get credit for that. And it doesn't even matter if my own anecdotes and stories are on the article. No, they're in the video. Yeah, they're in the video. People can watch the video. They can get my stories that they want. But if they're reading the article, as long as the article communicates the information that people need to know to improve their lives, it could have a story about her life in it, or it could have just anything she comes up with. So I emailed her and I was like, I read this quote and I read this chapter and I'm like, I think you should just have the credit for the articles and not even try to translate the video into an article. Just take my notes and run. Yeah. Yeah. It's about what, what will create the most useful thing, Mm -hmm. not but my face has been on this website for years and years and years. Yeah. It's all me. It's like that's not that's not how it works. And yep. it's it's easy not to think that when you'll see tons of websites that are completely a cult of personality. Who knows what happens behind the scenes? But mm-hmm. it feels good to both have a team and say, like, you deserve credit. This is a good team. Yeah. 
And I, I honestly think right now CIG's website is a little bit cult of personality-ish. It's a little bit, but Mainly it was also it built changed. like 17,000 years ago. Yeah. Probably not that long, it's but like, I'm It's rounding. four years old, and at that point it was like me, and then you had just done the freelance project. And there yeah. Was, well, at there that was point it, it was like just – it was just you. Yeah. And I, I think at that time it was a strength because it gave the blog a personal voice that a lot of other blogs didn't have. But now that we've built a team, I'm starting to think like it. my face shouldn't be on it. My face is on the videos. It'll be That's like enough. a your face can be like a GIF background. <laughs> there for we go. The new Spinning website. On the It'll background. look really good. Just repeat. Also, it. yeah, I said GIF fight me. Oh, I, I think it's GIF. I mean, I, know, I just assume I somebody's kn- gonna fight I me know after it's they hear GIF, that. But I prefer GIF. Yeah, I prefer GIF. I so don't care. I'm just gonna say it that way. <laughs> Linguistic evolution, y'all. Mm-hmm. But I have been thinking about that, and I thought about like um, like Khan Academy, an organization I look up to immensely. When you go on Khan Academy's webpage, you don't see Salman Khan just on the homepage, like in all his glory Look at me. and splendor. I'm smart. Yeah, he's he's off the homepage. It's more about the mission of Khan Academy. Yeah. So, and I think like we have a mission at College Info Geek that is not just make Tom look good on the homepage of web <laughs> on the website. Yeah. And so I think this is a. It's cool that that quote is from Truman as well because that kind of a of an of a viewpoint is kind of hard here in an American culture where it's like, be really cool. Cult of personality rules. Mm -hmm. And it's all about you and how many accomplishments you can put on your Instagram feed. And yeah. How many like, "Mm, I'm, I'm feeling a little out of shape. Let me do this selfie where I look super attractive on a super rich, exclusive beach somewhere. (laughs) Let me just do that and pretend I'm being humble. (laughs) That I paid $10 to get access to. Yeah. And then I'll go rent a private jet for 30 minutes. Check out my jet, guys. Check out my Gulfstream. Um, this is bringing something to my mind, though. How do you balance this with the clear need to sell yourself when you're trying to get a job or a scholarship or anything? Oh, yeah. Like, I don't want to make people think you should always be humble, never say anything like, good about yourself. When you're in an interview, you need to sell yourself. You yeah. probably shouldn't be like, oh, it was mostly the other guys. Yeah, exactly. I just... It's the so last button. When you're in a situation where people are asking you, like, what have you done that makes you a great candidate for this job or that makes you deserve this scholarship, then sell yourself. Yeah. You know? And I mean, you could always you could always give credit to people where credit is due, but you have to make sure that you're putting about your best foot forward and demonstrating your qualities. But once you're in that job, I think then then think about how can I demonstrate these level five qualities? Yeah. I'm going to be a little more humble. And in those situations, it's kind of similar to me as just regular networking or trying to talk about something you care about with with new people that you want to be your friends, maybe. Mm-hmm. If you make it more about either the work or what the work does for someone, but you're still talking about your accomplishments rather than I accomplished this, it's I accomplished this and these people are benefiting from it. Yeah. It, it will come off as a little less self-centered. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. So that is my first lesson here. All right. The second one is about what they called the hedgehog concept in the book. And this comes from a story, probably like a fable, thousands of years old, about a fox and a hedgehog. And the fox is quick and sleek and smart and clever and tries to find all these ways to catch the hedgehog and eat it. And every single time, the hedgehog's like, I'm just going to curl into a ball. Yeah. It knows the one super effective thing it can do that will ensure that it doesn't get eaten. And he used this story in the book because what they found is that all these companies that made this huge transition, they didn't have some uber clever strategy that involved like a 27-step plan and, you know, clandestine spy operations or anything. It was more crystallizing what they could be the best in the world at, what they were passionate about, and what would drive their economic engine. So basically what would make money. Yeah. Figuring out what's in the middle of those three circles – that's their hedgehog concept. And then just dog-headedly going for it with with a lot of, I don't know, like without going for other things at the same time. Yeah, and there was even a case where, I can't remember which company, but the guy in charge was basically, we have, what was it, five or six years or something to that effect to cut this entire part of our business away because oh, we're not yeah. doing it anymore. Wasn't it Walgreens? Um. Well, yes, I think it was Walgreens, and I think they may have done food before. They had and they were just like, this is dead. I know it's working. We're making money, but we're cutting it off. There's a yeah. due date, 
by which we don't need it anymore and we'll kill it entirely. Mm -hmm. And I found that really fascinating because he made sure to say like Walgreens restaurant business wasn't doing bad. In fact, it was really profitable. No, it just wasn't the future. Yeah. And they realized like, okay, we are good at restaurants, but we can be the best in the world at super convenient drugstores that are clustered within a city. So people always have one near them. So we are going to kill off the restaurant. Because if we're focusing on this, we can't focus on this. And I think this is really where it gets into what you were saying. Like this book is essentially essentialism well, for this, businesses. This part clearly <laughs> goes can be used for personal things because I actually wrote down exactly what it says in essentialism so that I will remember it. Because okay. for this one, it's the hedgehog concept is what you're deeply passionate about, what you can be the best in the world at, and yeah. what drives your economic engine. But in essentialism, they say your highest point of contribution mm-hmm. is – what you're deeply inspired by, what you're particularly talented at, and what meets a significant need in the world. It's like the exact same set of circles just on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely is. So I don't don't know if there's like a whole lot to say about that, but that's kind of like the advice I've given to people for years when they're asking like, what should I do with my life? It's like, well, find whatever's in the middle of those three circles, whatever you're super good at or that you can develop a talent at whatever you're passionate about and whatever makes, I don't know if makes money is the right word, but whatever there's like a market for or a need for the world. Yeah. Cause yeah, I was going to say like money, but in the end of the book, they talked about how they shifted away from businesses and talked about how um, these people like created the, the best uh, track and field team in the state. Yeah. And clearly they're not doing that for the money, but they identified the hedgehog concept that would allow them to win state championships year after year after year. So there's a need for that because the students want to be part of something great and they're passionate about it and they're good at it. It doesn't necessarily yeah. need to make money. Yeah, for the personal level, it shouldn't just be what makes the most money but what yeah. has the most meaning. Mm-hmm. And it's money for a company because obviously without the money, the company cannot keep going. Yeah, and for your career, it's the same thing. Yeah. Like it doesn't necessarily have to make a lot of money, but you know, if you're passionate and good at underwater basket weaving – I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of people that are going to buy that. So, like, you need enough to buy SpaghettiOs to live. Yep, nothing but SpaghettiOs <laughs> all day. SpaghettiOs in your milk for your cereal. Yep. That's disgusting. Uh, moving on. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it seems <laughs> obvious to say, well, yeah, just do what you're best at and and stuff. But the important corollary to that is the part where you need to Remember what things aren't worth pursuing because they're taking time that could have gone toward the best thing. Yeah. Exactly. Cutting off those restaurants is the hard part. Not saying we can make convenient drugstores. Well, let's do both because mm-hmm. you, you have to kill something that you might be good at. That's the hardest part of that. Yeah, that's the real tough part. It's so hard to let go of things you are good at, especially if they're already doing well for you. I mean, there's stuff that we do that we're just like, we're pretty good at this. We can keep doing it. But is it the, is it the thing we can be the best in the world, in the world at? Yeah. Probably not. So we need to figure out how to move away from it and move into the things that we can be the best. It also, I want to mention this. It takes care to mention that the hedgehog concept does not crystallize overnight. It's not like the CEO is like, we need a hedgehog concept. I read about it in a book by Jim Collins. So what do you guys think it is? Oh, yeah. Like they come up with it in five seconds. Let's check out the the library room with the whiteboard, draw a bunch of diagrams, draw a hedgehog with cool sunglasses. Yep. Probably got him. Boom, make Sonic games. Yeah, make That's Sonic the games. Hedgehog if you haven't played Sonic Mania, play it. You'll have your hedgehog concept immediately. Wasn't that a, was that a fan game or was it like Sonic Mania just came out. It's it's not a fan game, but they made it in the style of the Genesis games. Or was it I feel like I heard something about like it being a fan or maybe maybe the guy who they hired to make it had like made a bunch of fan games that were so good they hired him to yeah, make that, it. Yeah, that may be like the that. case, but it's definitely been published officially. Yeah, yeah it, it is an official game. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to play it still. But it's like made by people who are fans of the original. Yeah. But anyway, it, it does take care to mention that the hedgehog concept takes a lot of time and energy and arguments, in the case of companies, to develop. So that is why essentialists explore more than non-essentialists because they know. I won't know what my hedgehog concept is, what my true passion thing is, until I go out and try a bunch of things. Yeah. Until I learn what I don't like to do, what I do like to do, what qualities of work really inspire me. That all takes work and time to figure out. So it's going to take a while to do. All right. Third lesson, 
is to embrace what they call the Stockdale Paradox. Uh, the Stockdale Paradox is essentially the fact that level five leaders in great companies do two things, which are seemingly paradoxical. They constantly um, accept and look at the brutal facts of reality. So if something is threatening your business, they don't shy away from it. And a lot of people won't do this. Like I've heard people who are like, I don't want to log into my bank account because I'm afraid of how low it's going to be. Oh yeah. This is the opposite. I don't, of I don't want to feel bad today. We'll do yeah. it tomorrow. This is the opposite of that. Look and see that, oh, my bank account is super low. I'm eating ramen for the next week. Like having the willingness to to embrace and look at those brutal facts of reality. You know, in case of some of these companies, they had the willingness to look and say, wow, our core business model's dying. Or Procter Gamble's gonna come in and they're gonna crush us. Like that's a brutal fact of reality. But at the same time, while they are confronting these brutal facts of reality, they are also never losing faith that in the end they are going to win, even if it takes a long time. So even if a brutal fact of reality seems like it is going to just crush the life out of your company, they don't lose faith in their company. Yeah, it's sort of a like confident optimism. Not a, not a pure yeah. optimism, but a confident one thinking it will be good because of stuff that we will figure out. Yeah. Not because we're just ignoring the bad stuff and hoping it goes away. Mm-hmm. And it, it isn't pure optimism. I want to point that out because that's the reason it's called the Stockdale Paradox. So the name comes from Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest ranking U.S. military member who was imprisoned at the POW camp. Uh, they just called it the Hanoi Hilton. I'm sure that's not what the Vietnamese called it back in the Vietnam War. And Jim Stockdale was there for eight years. He was there from 1965 to 1973. And during that time, he was tortured over 20 times. Like a horrible experience. He had no set release date. He basically didn't know if he would ever see his family again. Like possibly one of the most horrible situations you could ever be in for eight years. And while he was there, he was celebrated by all the other POWs because he would make up all these rules and code systems that would help the other prisoners communicate. Like they'd tap on the floor in certain patterns or like sweep in certain patterns um, so they can communicate. And he would just like help them not give up. And he said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retro- which in retrospect, I would not trade. So when Jim was talking to him, the author of this book, he asked, which ones didn't make it? Which ones ended up dying? And he said it was the optimists. Not optimists like he was, where he never lost faith in the end of the story, as he said. But the people who would say, we're going to get out by Christmas. And then Christmas rolls around and they don't get out. Yeah, the unrealistic optimism. Right. And so they say, okay, we didn't get out by Christmas, but we're definitely going to get out by Easter. Easter rolls around. Break your heart over and over and over. Yeah. And that's what he said. He said they died of a broken heart because eventually their optimism was crushed so many times because they had optimism with a due date or unrealistic optimism. And eventually it was crushed so many times they gave up. Yeah. And I really like that mindset of this is sort of going to be my horrible backstory that only makes the future success look all the better and more inspiring to anyone that goes through something. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that's personally something that I also like. It's yeah. just it's just a great way to view things. Mm-hmm. So the Stockdale paradox, in his own words, are: you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So basically, faith in the end, but also looking at those facts, being willing to accept them. Um, one other thing the book mentioned that I felt was a very useful specific application of that whole looking at the brutal facts thing was what he called red flag mechanisms. So basically building things into your life that will alert you to the fact that something is going wrong or that there's a threat on the horizon. Whether it's having like a review day at the end of the week where you start to realize, oh, I'm not getting these things done or I keep planning all these things and I never get even half of them done. So clearly there's like a problem yeah. with my ability to plan or I have a procrastination yeah, or, problem or something yeah. like that. Uh, my favorite example of this in the book was the short pay thing. You remember that part? Yeah. So basically there's this guy, uh, Bruce Wolpert. He owns a company called Granite Rock. And he has a policy called short pay where if a client doesn't like the work that has been done, they can strike something off the invoice 
and just pay the difference. They don't have to ask for permission. They don't have to call ahead. They're just like, yeah, this wasn't done to my standards. I'm just going to cross it off and pay you less. Yeah. So obviously that's pretty extreme, right? Because that means he can't really um, bank on the revenue that he's invoiced for. But it is an extreme way of knowing if something has gone wrong. Because like he says, when customers give feedback on like a feedback form, you just ask them for their opinion. It's really easy to rationalize away what they said. Like, oh, they just said that because they're dumb or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you get that too late. Like if you're a professor and you yeah. get you get your feedback forms at the end of the semester and well, you're like, oh, well, I, I could have done something about that a few weeks ago, I guess, but it, not now. Yeah. It's, it's my complaint about a lot of um, like – when I was using Mint and I was like, I don't know that I spent over what I wanted here until it's like weeks after it happened and I can't do anything. You can't do much about it. So yeah, now you, you've spent weeks doing the wrong thing when you could have been alerted so much earlier. Yeah. So the short pay thing is just like, now if this person really made the conscious decision not to pay us for this, we probably messed up. Yeah. And There's most people aren't just going to be like, <laughs> this is a good system. Let me just, I didn't like any of it. Wink. Yeah. Just like most people don't like yeah, they're not, watch a movie and return not, it to Walmart. Like you they'll take it back. Yeah, it's it's you could. It could happen. Most people are generally reasonable and ethical. I mean, if that happened in their situation, they probably just would say, You're not my client anymore. Get, oh, it's true. Get yeah. out of here. It's gonna be like, pretty clear. Not, if you've got somebody yeah. constantly striking things off. So it's like, good that he was able to rationalize and be like, This yeah. isn't enough of a reasonable fear for me to get rid of the positives of this mm-hmm. system. And I forgot about this, but didn't Jim Collins say in the book that he was teaching a class where a student literally raised their hand and they said, hey, you're you're leading too much with your questions? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do remember a section like that. Yeah. And he said that he appreciated that because, again, had he had to wait till the end of the semester for feedback forms to come in, well, now he's just wasted an entire semester asking questions the wrong way, hurting the development of his students. So the faster you can get feedback, the better off you are. So that is the Stockdale Paradox. That is my third lesson. And before we get into the final three, we do have a sponsor this week, guys. Uh, this week is yeah, this week's episode is sponsored by FreshBooks, as it has been for the past, I don't know, three months-ish? I don't remember time. But yeah, this is a pretty good episode for it, actually, because we're talking about business. And I'm sure that most of you at home are probably not running companies as CEOs. Someone is. Some of okay, maybe there's maybe there's a CEO of a giant company watching. Not most, this. but someone. Hello, <laughs> but I know from experience that doing work on your own as a freelancer or just having a small business is definitely something that a lot of college students do, even high school students. So, if you are running your own business, maybe you are um, mowing lawns for people, or you're a web developer, or you're a graphic designer. You know that to run your own business or to be a freelancer, you have to basically do everything yourself. You have to do the work, but you also have to do the marketing and you have to do the sales and you have to do the accounting and invoicing. And that is where FreshBooks comes in because that accounting, that invoicing process, without the right tools, it can be a pretty tough process to do. You have to send invoices in the mail or over email. You have to wait for them. It's just a pain. It's a little intimidating. So FreshBooks has gone and built tools to help you streamline that process and to spend less time worrying about it and more time actually focusing on the work that you're actually good at. When you sign up for FreshBooks, you have a dashboard you can log into. You can see exactly how much money you have coming in. You can see who owes you what, so you don't forget about that. And you can easily create invoices in less than 30 seconds that you can send off to your clients. And once they have looked at them, you actually see that they looked at them, which is pretty sweet. The other nice thing, and I love this, is that you can create uh, the ability to let your clients pay you online. So our our freelance writer, Ransom, does this every single time that he writes an article. He just sends me an invoice through FreshBooks. Our content manager, Kayla, does this every month, just like I worked this many hours, so you owe me this much. And I can pay them both instantly on FreshBooks through the invoice. I don't have to write a check. I don't have to log into PayPal. It's pretty amazing. And because of that feature, people who use FreshBooks get paid up to four days faster on average than people who use other systems. So if you are a freelancer, if you do mow lawns or build websites or do graphic design and make logos for people, give FreshBooks a try. You can go over to freshbooks.com CIG to get a free 30-day trial, test it out, unlimited, uh, unrestricted use for that period of time and see if it is for you. And when you do that, definitely put College Info Geek in that how did you hear about us section so they know you came from this show. Thanks so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring this episode. And we are going to get down into the fourth lesson. Boom. All right. 
So I love this lesson because it reminds me a lot of what has made our business successful. Um, It's the flywheel concept. So picture this in your mind because he builds this picture in the book. You have a 5,000 pound flywheel that's mounted on an axle. It's like two feet wide. It's like 15 feet tall. And it's your job to get that thing moving. So maybe there's like a handle sticking out of the wheel and you can pull on it. And when it's not moving, it's 5,000 pounds. So you pull as hard as you can and you can maybe get it to move like an inch in half an hour. But now it's got a little bit of momentum. And then the next day you come and you pull on it some more and you just keep pulling over and over and over again. And every single time you do, it goes a little bit faster until eventually the momentum of the flywheel works in your favor and starts to take over. Now you can put barely any effort into it because it's already going and it's going faster and faster and faster. And the whole purpose of a flywheel is to store up that potential energy so it can be used later on. And that is a good metaphor for what made a lot of these companies successful. This is a really interesting one to me because I have had so many people ask me like, hey, Tom, what was like the one thing that made your blog successful? Or what's the one thing that let you become a professional YouTuber? And I always like, I've always tried to answer the question straightforward. I'd like look through all the history of College of Bogey and I try to think like, what were the things that really put it on the map? Okay, there was that one time when Lifehacker like published one of my articles. Or there was that one time I got to guest post on that one blog on Nerd Fitness. Um, Or there's that one time that I got to do a guest video for How to Adult. Like those are certainly catalysts. But when you really take it in context, those are all just highly visible data points on a timeline that has thousands and thousands and thousands of them. You know, there's like 600 articles on College and Boot Geek. Many of them got a few views and then nothing else. But maybe they built up the content library or they built up skills. You've done, I don't know how many episodes that you've edited. You know, a lot of that work is not visible but eventually it all contributes to this podcast being successful. Yeah. And they had a quote um, from Sam Walton, I think his name was, Mm -hmm. of Walmart near the end where like after it had become big and successful and Walmart's huge now, he says, and like most overnight successes, it was 20 years in the making. Yep. And I really liked that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like the, the uh, the chicken egg metaphor. So basically like from the outside you see an egg hatch and a chicken pops out and you're like, wow, that's a momentous event. The egg just hatched, the chicken popped oh, it out. It just turned into a chicken. Wow. But internally, that's just one additional step in the evolution of the chicken's life. And it takes a long time to get there. So from an outside perspective, we often look at these big companies or we look at really successful people and we think it's an overnight success because one day we didn't know about them and the next day, wow, that person's amazing. Yeah. But you don't get to see the years and years and years of work it took to get there. And that high-profile magazine article or YouTube video you saw or something, that's just one additional data point. Yeah. And they hey, have to keep going. Which which step do you think, little baby chicken, made you a chicken when you were in there? Which one was it? <laughs> which one? Yeah, exactly. It was, actu- it was all of them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was... Uh, it was all of them. If you copy one, it them. will not do much for you. Yeah, exactly. So... I really wanted to put this on here because I know people who they think that there's going to be like this one just master stroke that will let them succeed in life. They'll know they've made it. Yeah. And the problem with that is that when you have that mentality, you try something, you try it for a little bit. It doesn't, you know, go gangbusters. It doesn't like make you famous or rich or whatever right away. So then you try something else. It says like a lot of the things or a lot of the companies that just had their momentum totally killed in this book. um, This was caused because a new CEO would come in and just stop the flywheel, throw it in another direction, be like, we're going to go into consumer products. We don't care about healthcare. And then they'll get fired because there's not good results. Another CEO comes in like consumer products are dumb. Let's go to healthcare. Yeah. Flip flopping back and forth. And this is not something that is limited to companies. So I've got a friend, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to pick on them too much, but I've got a friend that I have known for six or seven years. And this friend is insanely talented at what they do, but they haven't built anything of lasting value because they'll put a ton of effort into one thing. It'll be amazing. And they've showed me 
the fruits of their efforts at certain points. And I'm like, this is super good. And then they'll decide it's not perfect. They don't like it. And it didn't do as well as they thought it would. So they scrap it. They actually delete it and try something else. The harshest form. Not even yeah. just we're going to ignore it and maybe come back to it later. No, they were but like, it's delete. dead. Yeah, because I feel like they had this thing in their head where they have to look back at their body of work and have everything be perfect, which is actually kind of sad because if you looked back on your body of work and all of it was perfect, then you'd never see upward progression, would you? Yeah, if you're growing, you're probably always going to think that most of your old stuff isn't great compared to your new stuff. That's a good thing. Yeah, exactly. So contrast that friend to another guy I know. His name is Aaron Marino, and he runs a channel here on YouTube called um, Alpha M. And I think at the present moment, he has like 2.5 million subscribers. Just a couple. Just a couple. He'll get like 500,000 views on a video. Um, when he does a sponsorship, he can charge well over 10 grand per video. Like doing pretty great. But he's been doing YouTube videos for like seven or eight years. And you can go back. You can sort by oldest on his videos, and they're terrible. Like the audios, <laughs> the audios really bad. He's obviously not developed his charisma yet. He doesn't know how to present himself in front of the camera. Like there is good information in them, but if you compare one of his videos now to the first one, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's come a long way. Those videos back then, <laughs> there's some stuff wrong with them. But because he made videos every single day for years and years and years, those were all little pushes on the flywheel until one day breakthrough. Yeah. And now he's got all these millions of subscribers and views and fame and all the things. But it is because he decided to keep pushing in the same direction. You make little course corrections now and then when you need to pivot, but he's not like, oh, this fashion YouTube channel thing isn't turning, isn't working out after six months. I'm going to stop it and I'm going to go be a plumber or something. Yeah, that's exactly what essentialism is trying to prevent. Mm-hmm. Don't put little effort into a bunch of things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And don't quit when you don't see initial results. Yeah. Like, I, I think there's there's a difference between strategically quitting because there are no results and understanding that the first initial results of something are going to be small and they're probably not going to live up to your expectations. Yeah. Like, are, we're, they're always overblown. I think that in order for quitting to be really strategic, it can't be a reaction necessarily, a gut reaction to an immediate thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like how, let's say we wanted to put off an episode of this podcast. We wanted to not have one some week. I would find that completely different if we were like, that week, like a month from now, I, we're actually really busy and we don't have time to record an episode preemptively before then. So we're going to have to to bail on that one. Yeah. That is a completely different and intentional situation compared to, uh, oh no, everything's ruined this week. I guess we'll just, uh, we'll just cancel <laughs> it. That doesn't, that doesn't send the same message because that's a reactionary decision. Yep. And we almost did that recently. We did we? almost <laughs> do that, but we did not because it was a reactionary decision. So we made an episode come out. Yeah. I think it was, what was it? it was, oh, it's because I was going to New York. Yeah. And then I was sitting there and I was like, I don't want to skip. Like no, I want no, because, to, because but it's I don't easy want to justify. To. Oh, well, you were in New York. There is a justification. Yep. We can make a justification. But if you plan ahead for the justification or you make it when you're outside of the emotional bubble you might be in if something goes terribly wrong with your project, mm -hmm. then and you approach it with a cool head, you can make a good decision that's yeah. actually strategic. It shouldn't be just a response to something that you didn't like. Yeah, exactly. All right, so lesson number five here. Um, this one has to do with technology. So they had an entire chapter on how good to great companies use technology in a different way than the companies that didn't sustain their greatness or didn't make the leap in the first place. So the main thing is that the, the good to great companies, they crystallized their headshot concept and they didn't jump on the technology fads. They only used technology that fit within that concept. And they didn't, like feel like the sky was falling when the internet came around or when some new technology came around and felt like they had to adopt it immediately. They just like, they sat down, they waited, they figured out how it would fit in and then they slowly but surely implemented it. Now, one thing that I found very useful um, for the application to an individual here is the author made sure to point out that for the technologies that fit into the hedgehog concept, most of the companies ended up pioneering something, being way ahead, like decades ahead in certain areas or in certain instances, and you know using technology very well. Even companies like um, Walgreens. Yeah. You wouldn't think of Walgreens as a tech company 
But before anybody else did this, they literally launched a satellite network that connected all their stores. So that way, if you're like in Arizona and you live in Florida, you can still get your uh, prescription. Yeah. And that sounds pretty mundane today. Yeah. Now we're just like, everybody has that. Yeah. But back in the seventies, nobody else had that. If you go to a drugstore in a different state, they're going to be like, who are you? But Walgreens knows who you are and they have your pills exactly as you need them. Like that was pretty crazy. But that was because that fit perfectly into their convenience concept. The whole idea of a customer should be able to go into a Walgreens and know they're going to be able to get their thing. That's why they had drive throughs That's why they had all the things they do. So looking at Walgreens again, um, when the internet came out, there was this website called drugstore.com, which I had never heard of, which I thought was telling. Yeah. And at the time, because again, this book came out in 2001, there were all these articles out there about how drugstore.com was going to crush Walgreens. Their stock was trading like 438 times its value versus Walgreens stock was trading at like 1.6 times its value, I think. So all of this hype. And there were all these articles out there by analysts saying, Walgreens is a dinosaur. They're going to get left in the dust. And in the future, everyone's going to just order their prescriptions off drugstore.com. That's all it's going to be. Clearly, that didn't happen. No. I mean, I wrote down the whole Fortune 500 things even 16 years after this book came out. Walgreens is at number 17. That's pretty good. It is the 17th most profitable company in the world, or at least highest revenues. I think it's revenues, not profit. But still, yeah, 17th basically biggest company in the world at this point. So they looked at the internet and they said, that is a potential thing that we can use, but how does it fit into our concept? We're not going to rush and try to build our website right away. We're just going to try to build it into our concept slowly but surely. And I, I like what they said. They said, we're a crawl, walk, run company instead of a run, walk, crawl company, which happens to a lot of these people who try to hit the ground running and don't really know what they're doing. They're just throwing yeah, VC put, money you're everywhere. You're putting all this effort into everything, but yeah. you don't know why. Mm-hmm. So it can't do anything. So very slowly, after drugstore.com had already launched, very slowly they launched a small website where you could just book a prescription and then drive to the Walgreens and, and get it. Like, really simple. And then they figured out that that worked, that worked and fit into their convenience concept really well. So eventually they were like, all right, now we'll bet big. We'll make a website that works really well. But it was a slower process. And at the time, all these analysts were like, it's the great internet land rush. If you don't get... Your spot right now, you're going to get left in the dust. And clearly that didn't happen. Walgreens was a little bit slower to the game, but because they knew how to use the technology within that hedgehog concept, they succeeded. Yeah. And the people who were there first in the land grab, they didn't really know what they were doing. Well, it's kind of like with the with the quitting something. They were reacting. They were yeah. doing a reactionary sort of maneuver for the internet. They didn't mm-hmm. think strongly about how to do it. They were just like, oh no, got to do it now. Yep. And that's almost never the answer. Yeah. One thing not really related to the points here that I, I kind of realized, how many websites do we go to today where the domain is just like thing.com, like cars.com or Those drugstore.com? Those like to me at this point. Yeah. Honestly, drugstore.com sounds like a sketchy website to me. It, it just it just sounds like it should be. Yeah, isn't it kind of funny how like back then like there was so much value yeah. placed on domain names that were just like common words, and now every website we go to, I I can't think of one that isn't like a name with a story well, behind it or some sort of clever name. Money dot com. I would not. I would. I don't think I'd go to that bank. That would yeah. sound kind of weird at first. It's too. You're not telling me who you are or what you're doing. It's very generic, and now I don't trust it because the internet kind of just did that. Mm-hmm. We, we don't go to statusupdate.com. We go to twitter.com. Yeah. We don't go to videos.com. We go to youtube.com. And it just kind of made me realize, like, again, this is not really related to the productivity tips here, but I think a lot of people were like, we got to have something that people will type into their, their address bar and put a .com at the end and they'll get what they want. <laughs> That's not how I navigate the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I think, like, they, did, they didn't realize what search was going to do. But the other thing is, like, yeah. if – if you if your website address is cars.com, that, that people are going to think your business is named that. And there's really no story behind that. Like Amazon has a compelling mental imagery. Everything from A to Z, the everything store. It's not just like everything.com or thestore.com. Yeah. I just, I can't think of any website I go to that is just a noun like that. Well, it just goes to show you, you can't really predict how the new technology is going to be used that well. It's true. Yeah. And they also mentioned in the book, 
most of the companies that are there first with innovative technology aren't the ones who win. Like VisiCalc was the first spreadsheet program. Yep, and I had then, never heard about that until I read about it in the book. I had heard of it, but I'd never used it. I and just then used Excel. Lotus 1, 2, 3 beat them out, and then Excel beat them out, and who knows, maybe Google Sheets will beat out Excel someday. I'm not sure. Maybe. Probably not. Probably they're like, do I don't even, they're exactly the same. I use both. I have heard that um, Google Sheets purposely keeps their uh, technology like a year behind Excel. Oh, yeah? For like copyright reasons. That's interesting. Because let's be honest, Google Sheets is is literally Excel. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's why like, I don't, <laughs> I don't really different. see a difference. I just use that one when it has to be online everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I use Google Sheets almost exclusively now, but it's like the same. All the formulas are the same. Yeah. Like you can look up an Excel formula, type it into Google Sheets, it works. So I could see why they would keep it behind. It probably won't beat Excel for a while, but you never know. Um, so the last point in technology here I wanted to mention. So like we said, with the hedgehog concept, a lot of the companies were innovators, they were trailblazers, they were pioneers with technology. But they also realized if there's a technology that is outside of our hedgehog concept, we don't have to optimize it to the max. We can accept parity. We can accept it just being average. Or we could not use it at all. Ah, this can be all right if it's not that important. Yeah. So, you know, if we're the best uh, educational YouTube company in the world, then we don't need to worry about like building our own Slack competitor because it'll be a little bit faster to message our team or something like that. It's just use what's out there. Yeah, you should optimize the important stuff. Mm -hmm. And the last lesson I had here um, was to let the results of your pushes on the flywheel speak for themselves. So we did mention a little earlier about how a lot of the companies that didn't do well would launch all these grandiose projects and they'd make big announcements about what they were going to do. They'd sell the future is how they put it in the book. And mm. they'd try to motivate their employees and be like, hey, everything's going to be amazing in the future. So why don't you work really hard to get us there? Whereas the great companies didn't do any of that. Instead, they just made these small incremental pushes toward greatness and every little push on the flywheel built more momentum and they just let their people see that. They didn't try to push all their employees under the hype train. Exactly, yeah. And people naturally want to be part of something great. That's why um, there's a channel I watch on YouTube called Linus Tech Tips and they're, um, they're like a huge channel, 4 million subscribers, great content. And people in the comments are always like, I want to work for you guys. I would love to work for you guys. People want to be part of something great and visible and cool. So there's no need to build the hype up before it happens. Just let yeah. it happen, and then people will want to be part of it. And it's more likely to succeed anyway, because now people have built an internal expectation of themselves to contribute rather than just thinking like, oh, the big boss man told me to really give it my all, so I guess I should, because he said so. Yeah. Um, and that also relates to, I think, the um, the whole don't talk about your goals thing. Oh, yeah. This reminded me a lot of that because when you announce your grand vision for some goal that you want to achieve, again, you haven't really put in any work. You haven't shown any initial results. You're just building hype. And maybe people are like, wow, that's pretty cool. And you get that good feeling. But it's a lot better when you just put in the work and you're like, man, I'm actually making progress here. And then it just like, like the calm realization comes to you that I think I could actually go do that really big thing. Yeah. Because of the results. They speak for themselves. Well, if they get too excited and they're like, well, you're going to be amazing. And you're like, you're right. I am going to be amazing. So I could probably take tonight off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you just say that over and over. And yep. then you never did anything. So you're not amazing. I'll be amazing someday. <laughs> yeah. I'll get there. But tonight I'm going to play Mario. Exactly. So that is uh, the end of my list here. I think I may actually just put the list in the show notes. Because I, I literally actually wrote them out this time. So oh, nice we can create a little mini article out of the list that I wrote. Yeah. Um, so guys, thank you for listening. I'm not sure if there's anything else you wanted to add nope. before we close out. So that that is what we took from this book. Again, this is a book that is meant mainly for businesses. So I am not 100% sure if Good to Great is going to be on my essential books list for students. Well, that one CEO who's, who's watching this, the, yeah, you might want to read it. I wonder if any CEOs watch this podcast. I don't know. If you are a CEO, leave a comment. <laughs> We're yeah. going to get a bunch of people who are like, I, I am a CEO. Wink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be curious to know that though. But yeah, it's, it's one of those books where the intent of the author was not to give student advice, but you can learn from anyone, I think. 
and you can take lessons from almost anything, even if it doesn't seem directly relate to what you're trying to do. And because of that, I do want to try to branch out of it more with our book analysis episodes. Not every time should we pick uh, yeah. some straight up productivity book. Or I think straight we've, up- we've kind of hit most of the the big ones yeah. right now. Well, the one we're going to do next is is a psychology book. So I feel like it kind of fits neatly into like the every student should read this book category. Yeah. But sometimes we're going to do a book that just is totally out of left field. You know, maybe we'll do a biography of somebody. Maybe. I think that would be more interesting than just always doing. I've got some on my to read list. Which ones? Um, I think there's one on MLK. Okay. I don't remember the rest. My to read list is like 3,000 billion books long. My friend Matt uh, says his favorite book in the world is uh, the Jim Henson biography. The guy who made yeah. Muppets. So I've been meaning just, to read that. I just picture Kermit. I assume he looks like Kermit. He does not look like Kermit. I can tell you that. You can't take that from me. He's, okay, he looks like Kermit. I'm there sorry you. for that. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, this is episode 178. So if you want to find show notes for this episode, if you want to find a nice distillation of the six lessons that we presented in it, then uh, if you are on YouTube, just click the link in the description down below to find them. Otherwise, if you're on the audio feed, uh, cigpodcast.com slash 178 is that URL that's going to get you there. So check those out. Within those show notes, you will also find a link to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, which is a great way to support the show. Not only does it bump us up the rankings and helps more people find it, but it also tells us what we're doing right and what we can improve upon. So thank you so much if you do that. And that show notes page will have a link to show you how to do it if you don't know how. Last but not least, thanks once again to our sponsor, FreshBooks, for sponsoring this episode. And if you are somebody who's working for yourself, go over to freshbooks.com slash CIG to get that free 30-day trial and put College Info Geek in the How Did You Hear About Us section so they know you came from this show. All right, I think that about does it. So once again, thanks so much for hanging out with us, and we will see you in next week's episode. Stay cute.